to the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. Glad to have you with us. Our first two-wheel guest of our series. Of course, you knew eventually we would get around to the two-wheel stuff. This guy has 15 or 16 titles, depending on how you count them up. We'll get into that a little bit later. 150 career wins between motocross and supercross and 67 amateur titles of course we're talking about the goat the greatest of all time ricky carmichael rc how you doing today <laughs> i'm doing fantastic and uh glad to be talking to my buddy and uh it's ex- excited it's a complete honor to be the first two-wheel guest on your show and uh we're gonna have a good time today and i think the the viewers, listeners are going to love it. Okay, so tell me about this 16 or 15 titles thing, because you kind of go back and forth. I know five of them for sure are Supercross. The rest are all motocross titles. Where are you on the 15 or 16? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Normally, we don't count the um, the East, the, the uh, regional Supercross series. Those really don't go on because it's not a national championship, you know, like the Outdoors or the 254-50 Supercross championship so we normally don't count those and then i did double up if you remember in 2005 the supercross series i won the world championship so really don't count those it's the outdoors you know i won three let's see here 97 98 99 i won the 125 which is now the 250 class uh, mx championship and then i won uh let's see here seven i believe um outdoor championships so those 2000 2001 two three four five and 2006 uh all in a row which is fantastic and uh yeah the the east coast regional championship that i won was in 1998 i went perfect season uh that was really fun to do that and that that record still staying true yeah for people that don't understand that was every moto yeah that's 20 24 well i did that twice now i did that in uh, 2002 yeah, uh, that was my first year at Factory Honda, and then I did it again. I came back from an ACL repair in 2004, and that was on a four-stroke actually. Uh, and I won, uh, yeah, I won. I did 24-0 again. So definitely, uh, my tenure at Honda was uh, was pretty strong. Uh, it was some fun times that I'll never forget. Ricky, some of these numbers are absolutely insane and really hard to get your head around. Of all of these numbers, the the Perfect season, 67 amateur titles, five Supercross championships. Which number means the most to you? Well, that's a good question. Um, Well, my first amateur championship for sure would be uh, that that sticks out in my head is the first one at Loretta Lens. I think any aspiring motocross uh, athlete coming up, you ask them what they want to win, and they'll tell you a championship at Loretta Lens. So definitely when I was on a KX60 long time ago and then of course uh i would you know any any of my first pro championships because you work so hard you know and 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 i was able uh, at a very young age to recognize the um, the sacrifice that my parents were making and giving for me to get to be able someday to be a professional motocross racer i was able to recognize that at a very young age so when i was able to finally make it pro sign my first first pro contract and then be able to win at at a professional level and championship uh, all of those those first time championships uh were special 1997 outdoor 1998 with the perfect season 
uh, East Coast Championship, uh, and then moving on to my first 450 uh, MX Championship, which was in 2000, and then of course my 2001 um, Super Monster Energy Supercross title. That was really really special. I mean, when you when you look at these numbers, it's pretty obvious where the why you've been given the goat nickname of greatest of all time. Uh, where, who crowned you that? Who gave you that title? Do you remember? Of course I do. It was Matt Walker. We used to practice a lot, uh, together. He was our kind of my practice buddy. We practiced at Ezra Lust track. And, um, one day, I don't know, he, he was just, I think he got it from a Jay-Z song and he, and he started calling me the goat. And, uh, we were, I believe that weekend we were going into red butt national, and he, he said something to that effect and called me the GOAT at the press conference, and then it just spread like wildfire. Then uh, the press got a hold of it, and then, of course, the fans did, and then it just went up. You know, and this was you know, midway through my career, so I still didn't have quite the numbers that I did when I retired. However, um, it was kind of at the pinnacle of my career. So, uh, yeah, it just took off, and, uh, and I was able to uh, continue that trend until uh, I stepped away from, from motocross racing. But, uh, yeah, I don't know that I really li- – I mean, it, it sticks and it, it's there. I don't really know that I like it that much. I mean, really? Ralph, you know, I kind of like to – I kind of like to fly under the radar. I don't, you know, I'm not sitting here to, I don't, I'm not the guy that's going to beat my chest and say, Hey, look at me, look at me. Um, but, uh, it is, I, I will take the, I will claim the winningest racer of, of, of motocross racing, you know, motocross, supercross as a whole. But as far as the greatest, I mean, there's so many greats. That's interesting. I've never heard in all the years I've known you and I've known you for most of your life. Um, yeah. I've never heard you say that. I got to tell you, as a friend, I think it's fitting and very deserving. Of course, there's always been a little controversy about the king of Supercross, Jeremy McGrath. But for those that might not know, that's a whole different thing. When we talk about Jeremy, uh, old Showtime there, he is the king of Supercross with seven Supercross championships and 72 victories in that genre of the sport. The GOAT nickname for you really encompasses both. Yeah, you only have a measly five Supercross championships, and you know, I mean, forty-eight <laughs> wins over there. I mean, what? Do you, <laughs> just yeah, I mean, on you. well, what what makes uh, what I see? I I love the accomplishments that you have, but what sticks out to me is the ones the the should have been wins you know and the should have championships you know i look back and you know i just think well what would have happened if i did this and you know we shouldn't comment on hypotheticals but uh you know i feel i i easily gave up one supercross championship away and that was in 2004 when i had to have my acl uh, repaired and uh chad reed was uh the benefit uh, beneficiary of um of my torn acl and uh, he had a tremendous year it was fun to watch him so I feel like my chances were good going into that Supercross season. I was going to be aboard the uh, the four-stroke uh, Honda. I think it was going to work out really well for me compared to the equipment that I was on with them the year before. So I felt good going into it. Uh, but you know what? Hey, I blew my knee out. That one's on me, and I didn't make it happen. But I think of the ones that got away. You know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, when we do these podcasts, like the Ralph Shaheen Show here, presented by Lucas Oil, I like to talk to – mutual friends and get their perspective on our upcoming guests and maybe hear some of their stories. And so I called a good buddy of ours, the Osho, Johnny O'Mara, who I know, you know, all too well. Uh, Johnny had a legendary career of his own and became one of the best trainers in the business. 
mm-hmm. and coaches as well. And he worked with you quite a bit early on in your career, still very close to you to this day. And Johnny said in talking about you that he felt like he created a monster in how he had to go about getting you trained up and turning you loose on the competition. Uh, what do you think of that term, that he created a monster in you, a guy that couldn't – nobody wanted to win more than you? <laughs> yeah, um, Johnny was a fantastic uh, mentor to me, and he came at the right time, uh, very early on in my professional career. And, uh, you know, l- growing up in, in Tallahassee, Florida, I didn't have many distractions. And living in California, you know, the bright lights and, you know, that is the mecca that is the mecca of – of, of motocross and supercross racing. It really is. So it could, it would have been really easy for me to get sidetracked. Uh, so when I turned pro, I was spending a lot of time out there and, uh, he just got me on the right track. And, you know, I always had the work ethic. I just didn't know what to do really off the track. He helped me there. And, uh, he also taught me a lot about race strategy and, you know, how to approach the race, what to expect, where I needed to be in every single situation possible racing situation. So, um, it was just, it was a fantastic mixture, uh, with, with my, with my qualities combined with his, um, his knowledge. It was a duo that I today still think is one of the best in motocross supercross history. And, um, he did. He created a monster, and we accomplished a lot of things that no one will ever be able to do. And I owe a lot of that, especially my race strategy stuff, uh, to Johnny O'Mara. He mentioned, though, that it was tough training you early on, especially because he had to break through a few things with you. He said, you know, <laughs> you would you would work so hard, you'd come back from the track, and he'd take a peek inside the bed of your truck, and there'd be McDonald's wrappers or fast food fry things in there. What was up with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, that was, you know, a young 17-year-old kid. I mean, the, the sport has changed tremendously now. You know, everybody has their own trainers. Everybody has – a lot of the guys have their own property or, or practice at uh, full-blown prep facilities. It wasn't like that in my day. And so not only that, you know, the dieting wasn't as uh, square. I mean, you look today, I mean, the, the, the rest of the world, I mean, everything – a lot of things are becoming geared around eating healthy and all these uh, radical diets – uh, it wasn't like that back in the day. So, yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, like people talk about free thinkers. I was just eating what I wanted to eat, free eating. So, uh, <laughs> free, free eating. I, I was, love it. There you go. So, whatever, whatever I wanted that day uh, is what I got. And that was, uh, that was a tough habit to break. I was able to do it. Uh, however, yeah, Johnny was on me. He definitely didn't like that. That's one thing he struggled with. But it was hard for him because I was still out there getting the results, you know. So it's like, damn, you know, you really need to be careful. But on what you're eating and all this stuff, you shouldn't be doing that. But at the same time, I was answering the bell uh, at the races. He told me that you were you were never really satisfied. You know, even never, when you, even uh, when never. you would win, he said there were times you would you would throw your helmet and be angry because you felt like you could have been better. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if I can if I won races, uh, when I did win races, I would come back, Ralph, and I'd be like, "Damn it, you know, like I could have done better here." And I was always striving to be better, always, 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 and it was never good enough. And you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's the right way, but it worked for me, and that's how that that's how that's what made me click. Uh, I don't, you know, like I don't recommend that for everybody. Uh, you know, there's a special group of people that can handle that kind of pressure on yourself, mental pressure. And, uh, 
it, it just, it, it was that, that was me. You know, I was, I was happy, you know, I, I was happy and I appreciate it, especially the older I got, but, uh, um, you know, I was happy deep inside, but on the face of it, I was always, you know, thinking how I could be better. That is really hard to live with, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like I've told you before is, you know, it's not like I don't necessarily think that I enjoyed what I did. I really didn't. I just it's you know, I, I didn't finish school, um, so I didn't have that to fall on. And I recognized at an early age, like I told you earlier, the, you know, what my parents had sacrificed to get me to where I was. So I was all in at that point. So I did it to, to make a living, you know, now I had, a, looking back, yes, I had a great time hanging out with my friends. I got to meet some fantastic people, um, still to this day that, uh, I still talk with and visit with and, and consider them as friends. But at the same time, as far as the racing aspect, it was, it was like a job for me. I liked everything else you you know, know, that came with it. Your folks, um, Jeannie and big Rick, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Maybe a lot of people don't realize how far they went for you. You know, uh, there was a time your family was living in a trailer and your dad was doing everything he could to earn a living to feed the beast of Ricky's racing career, which really was mom Jeannie out at the racetrack with you pushing you to do laps. And then Rick, when he's not working his jobs, working the racetrack to get it ready. So you could train some more. hundred percent. You're exactly right. My mom would um, do the scoring. Sometimes she'd work the um, concession stand uh, to and they would waive my sign up fees and I mean there were times where the, we weren't going to have enough gas money to get to get to the races you know and so we'd have you know my parents would have to do certain things to be able to to make that happen and, and like I said one of the examples my mom was you know she would be do the do the scoring at the races and they'd waive my sign up fees so we could so I could race and I recognize that you know and 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 at a young age I mean I was doing it for them you know, I mean, I could see all my friends at home having a good time. They were being living normal lives like normal kids do. I mean, Ralph, I mean, we talk about it. Our kids are normal kids. They do normal sports and they live a normal life. They're not in that racing life. And, you know, and, and you see them having a really good time doing that. We did. I didn't get to do that. And, yeah, there were times that I wish I could have done that. Your mom is uh, legendary as a trainer in her own right. Was she as tough as any trainer you'd ever had? <laughs> she uh, she didn't let me get away with much. That, that's for sure. And uh, I owe a lot. I owe a lot of it to her uh, as far as the work ethic goes. You know, do it right or don't do it at all was kind of our motto, and uh, that's what we were going to do. If the competition were doing ten reps. We were going to do 20 reps. We were going to outwork them, and uh, that was um, that was what we did. That's how we approached it all, and uh, it ended up working out. Um, I think as she's gotten older, she you know she's a lot easier on the guys now. Uh, but I, I think what makes a good coach is recognizing what what each rider what each rider's strengths are and what their weaknesses are, and not every rider can handle the workload that I did and or, or the uh, uh corrective corrective criticism constructive criticism whatever the hell you call it you know i don't i don't know that every rider can handle that so you really have to pay attention to what makes them tick what doesn't 
and uh, she has definitely come a long ways there, dude. When when it was me, it was this is the way we're doing it, and it's this this is the way it's going to be. I was like, well, okay. But that's really interesting though, because it's it's not like your mom was a motocross racer in her younger days and knew where she was, you know, getting all that from. Like you know, uh, you know your dad might have been, for example. So so where did all this come from with her? Where did she learn to become well, a trainer? That's great, Ralph, um, and and I think people like to hear this, dude. My, we all, myself, my mom, and my dad were self-taught. They were students of the sport. We didn't have any race, motocross racing background, you know, them directly. Uh, my cousins raced uh, locally, and that's how that's how I essentially ended up getting into it. Uh, my dad thought it would be cool to get me a motorcycle, but they didn't know anything. I mean, uh, so they were truly students of the sport. We would go to the races, and as things started to progress, uh, really, my mom didn't know how to tell me to be faster. She was, she was just, she would watch, and she said, hey, these people, you know, this rider is going into the corners faster than you, and that's where you need to make up your time. I don't know how to tell you how to do that, but I'm just telling you that's where you're getting beat and you need to be better at it. And a lot of it started in the corners. You know, you need to come into the corners harder. So we started working on corners, you know, inch corner entry. Then, okay, this guy's coming out of the corner faster than you. He's accelerating, fat, you know, quicker, getting on the gas quicker. So we work on that. And this is all at young ages, you know, 60, 60s on KX 60s and KX 80s. I mean, I started doing that in this rep after rep after rep when I was 10, eight to 10 years old. And it helped me paid massive dividends uh, later on in my career. That, that's really remarkable that they were able to see all of that and, yeah. and, and figure it all out. I know there was a lot of other people, too, that have influenced your life that weren't necessarily blood members of the family. But guys like Terry, who Johnny O'Mara brought up. Yeah. Uh, became yep. like family and pushed you along is tell me a little bit about terry yeah so terry evans um in my previous life when i was married uh he was the best man in my wedding and he was um uh yeah one of my best friends older guy became a friend of the family but he was he was the guy where if my parents couldn't go to the practice track on that day he would uh he would go with me and uh, he he had no personal interest in this. He was just a, a damn good guy, and he helped me out so much. He was able to, you know, he 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 clicked it back just a little bit, the intensity, and brought light to everything for me. He was fun to be around, and um, he really knew how to make me tick, and he was understanding as well. So it was almost like a, a fresh breath of air, if you will. When I was able to go, when I was able to go with him practicing and stuff like that, and he was just, uh, yeah, he was just, he kind of understood, you know, he understood my parents' role, but he also understood the pressure that I was under, and he was sympathetic with me, and and yeah, so like when I got to go practicing with him, I was like, sweet man, this is gonna be fun. <laughs> And, uh, it, yeah, he was, it, he was a great guy to have in my corner. And I still talk to him to this day. Well, guy. you've got a great one in your corner now, a guy we all affectionately call Curly, J.H. Yeah. Leal, who uh, I, I know is just basically attached to your hip and in, in getting you through life these days. And, and he's yeah. a great guy. And he, J.H. and I were chatting last night a little bit about this. And uh, 
he, he brought up a few things. And one of the things that he brought up that is really kind of amazing is not only did you win all these races, but how you had to adjust to different technology to get a lot of that done. For example, back in the Kawasaki days, you were basically riding a steel frame two-stroke. Then you slide over to Honda. You get on an aluminum frame four-stroke. Then at Suzuki, it's a steel frame two-stroke and then an aluminum frame four-stroke in the middle of the season. How did you find the ability to jump around to all those different bikes? Because that's radically different frame and radically different engine. Yeah, I was extremely fortunate. Uh, and, and looking back on it, I loved it. This really paid dividends at the end of my career. Uh, I got to I got to race basically every possible uh, scenario. Um, you know, two strokes. And then steel chassis, two strokes on an aluminum chassis at Honda, uh, four strokes aluminum chassis. Only thing I never rode was a four stroke steel chassis. Um, so uh, then, then I went back to the two stroke steel chassis at Suzuki in 2005, and then back over to the uh, back over to the four stroke aluminum chassis. And all I can say is going through those and and i started and i came up when the aluminum chassis were relatively new so we were still doing all the tricks and the trick little uh, modifications on the frames to get those uh to get them to handle the way that uh we like would like to them to handle whether it's softening them up most of the time that was what you're trying to do change the rigidity of the frame and soften them up in air areas you know because uh, just you know the torsion of it uh, sideways torsion was so stiff so we we're always doing little tricks with engine hangers and all and different tie aluminum bolts you know thicknesses and it was i, I learned so much on chassis stuff then that uh it helped me dial my bike in where nowadays a lot of the riders you know they you give them their their stuff and and and, and a lot of guys don't like to test that much these days like back in the day so you you know, some of these teams have test riders, uh, but going back to going back to what I was saying, I don't want to get off course is, you know, I know how these bike works, these bikes work and it, and it helps and, and it's fun. So I can watch these bikes and I can ride them to this day. And, um, you know, they, they, it's amazing what these, how good these bikes handle, but yes, going back to racing all those different types of, uh, motorcycles, uh, has helped my knowledge on how they handle, how they work, what works in certain situations. We talk about it on the broadcast, and that's it's fun for me to explain it when we have the proper time. Yeah, and it, people might not realize how much the technology changed during that 10-year period where you were really at the top of your game. Oh, 100%. I mean, you think about it. I mean, I raced, I raced uh, you know, we, we had drum brakes on the 65s. <laughs> You know, then disc brakes, and then you know, then the next thing you know, we're going to aluminum chassis, and then we're going to four strokes, and then the only thing that was just coming onto the scene, we weren't competing with it, but uh, right in my final year was fuel injection, and then that thing, I mean, that just, it, I remember testing it pre-production stuff on my final year when i was racing part-time in 2007 and it was insane how much better fuel injection uh enhanced the performance of the engine i will never forget that to this day so uh i'm fortunate that uh, i was able to compete at the elite level 
on all those style of motorcycles. It gave me an incredible amount of uh, intelligence on the motorcycle uh, from an R&D standpoint. I learned so much uh, working with the factories to try to get these uh, motorcycles to work the way that we needed them to work and perform at the highest level. And uh, it helps me to this day. I love it. We're going to take a quick break here on the Ralph Shaheen Show presented by Lucas Oil. This is uh, Lucas Oil's Slick Mist Fast and Easy Speed Wax. If you'd like to learn more about Lucas Oil products, remember they're track proven, race ready. You can find a Lucas Oil retailer at lucasoil.com. We're going to be right back with more of the Ricky Carmichael, the GOAT, after this. There is less than one hundredth of an inch of motor oil protecting your car's engine. Friction and heat causes engine oil to experience thermal breakdown, weakening its ability to protect the engine and its parts. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer is specially formulated to resist thermal breakdown, protect vital engine parts, and extend the life of your engine. It also stops smoking, knocking, and oil consumption in worn engines. Lucas Heavy Duty Oil Stabilizer. Keep that engine alive. Hey race fans, it's Ralph Shaheen, and like you, I have a huge passion for racing. With the most in-depth features on racers, series, and events, no one covers racing better than America's original motorsports publication, Speedsport. Get your subscription to Speedsport Magazine today at Speedsport.com. As your power steering pump ages, seal leaks may occur, causing the power steering system to lose fluid. Your power steering system may also develop an annoying squeal, and the steering may become more difficult to handle. By using Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak, you will stop the seal leaks, reduce slack in rack and pinion, eliminate the squeals and hard spots in your power steering system. It is guaranteed to stop seal leaks for your money back. Lucas Power Steering Stop Leak. It works. We will be celebrating Speedsport's 85th anniversary this year. Incredible how time flies by. To help commemorate the occasion, we've unveiled the Vault Collection of merchandise. A really cool variety of t-shirts, hats, posters, and a lot more. It's all available right now in the store at Speedsport.com. Shop for yourself or get a gift or two for your racing buddies. The Vault Collection of merchandise. Available now in the store at Speedsport.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Of course, it's the 85th anniversary of Speedsport. This is our 85th anniversary edition right here. You can get a copy of it now, limited copies of that, so make sure you go to speedsport.com and get yourself a copy of the 85th anniversary issue of Speedsport. Ricky, of course, uh, joining us. Ricky Carmichael, you know, we were talking with um, J.H. Leal, uh, last night we were talking about that just you before. You mean Curly Leal? Curly Leal, yeah. And the reason why he's called Curly is because he's bald as a cue ball. Um, yeah. <laughs> he brought up he brought up a time when you went to compete in the motocross of nations, which is a huge thing for uh, any rider, but certainly here in the U.S. to be nominated to be a part of Team USA. It's basically motocross of nations is like um, the Olympics. Olympics, motocross. Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. so you're representing your country over there. And he was talking about how you went to Belgium one year, and the great Stefan Everts tried to get inside your head. He tried to <laughs> show off a little bit. You want to tell that story? 
Yeah, so uh, I, I wasn't looking at it that way at the time, but now that I look back, I think he was. Uh, so yeah, we raced we raced at Zolder. Uh, it, was at, it was an old like I don't know F one track yep. maybe. Or, yep, it yeah. is. And so anyhow, that track was awesome, by the way. Um, so we uh, let's see here. We went. We flew in to uh, Brussels and um, I'd always looked up to Stefan Evans. I mean, he, people always try to compare us, but really it's not a fair comparison. I came in, I never raced him at his best and he never raced me at my best. He was much older. I say much older, uh, tr- uh, quite a few years older than me. And, um, you know, he, he had surpassed his prime by the time I was to my prime. So anyhow, uh, however, he is an accomplished, um, accomplished champion in his own right in Europe and uh, respected by many. So we went over there racing in his home country. The dude's like Michael Jordan there. Anyhow, so he's given me the, the uh, tour of all his bikes and his accomplishments and, you know, kind of, you know, just, you know, just basically, <laughs> I guess, a harsh, I mean, just saying, you know, just showing me how badass he was, really. Yeah, how and big a his lot trophy of the people room around was, right? Me had taken it as, um, you know, this guy's just trying to mentally wear you down right now and show you how awesome he is. And it didn't bother me at the time. I was like, dude, this stuff's really cool, man. You know, but uh, I knew at that stage that uh, he was towards the tail end of his career, and and uh, I really didn't have anything to worry about. So, like, I was in a different frame of mind compared to the people that were with me. But uh, nevertheless, it was uh, that was a really good trip uh, from a result standpoint for me. Um, I had pretty much a perfect weekend. Uh, we didn't end up winning the overall, unfortunately. We had a couple of mishaps. Uh, but, uh, for me, it was, uh, I won all my respected classes, uh, with a blown out ACL. Uh, I, I, that part of the weekend wasn't fun. However, um, it was a cool experience to go there. Well, as you normally do, you're a little bit humble about this. JH pointed out that you got back in the car and said, that was cool, but I'm going to smoke him tomorrow. Yeah. I don't remember that. So see, that's all my, my good buddies that travel with me. They got all the cool stories and say and, and know all the things that I kind of forget. Kind of like I know there's a lot of fun things that we've talked about and done that I've I've probably forgotten about. Oh, you, don't you worry, I'm, hap- the- I'm happy to remind you of a few. But just before we get off motocross of the nations, <laughs> you did you were a member of three motocross of nation Team USA victory squads, and mm-hmm. uh, four times you were the individual winner, including your final race of your career at Bud's Creek that year at the motocross of nations you know one of the other things that comes up though you talk about moments that are um, humbling for you but also a little bit funny there's a there was a time at troy ohio you remember that one yeah oh, oh yeah i i uh so that was uh 2001 and uh those were some tough times i uh, i had an issue going on where uh yeah, my stomach had been bothering me, and I was doing a bunch of tests during the week trying to figure out what's going wrong. I just, I thought something was seriously wrong. Like, there is no way that this isn't a life-threatening situation, and it be this painful. I mean, and it, it had tipped its scale, and uh, reared up and uh, reared its ugly head in in the gnarliest fashion. 2001, Troy, we're going his first moto. And, uh, yeah, about four laps ago, my stomach was absolutely cramping so bad. And I 
through all these races prior to that, I had have able to hold it off, hold it off. Well, like I said, about the I think it was three laps to go, and I said, you know what, I'm I'm done holding this in, and and I had to relieve myself, and uh, it wasn't a number one, and yeah, so I ended up relieving myself probably let's say four times in two and a half laps. It wasn't good, so I pulled off the track. And I was supposed to do our TV interviews, and uh, I just kind of gave him the the wave, like I'm out of here, dude. And uh, yeah, so I ended up having irritable bowel syndrome, and that is something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. You know, I, you it's much. it's sure it's a little bit of bathroom humor here, but it also talks about how much you were willing to suffer through, because yeah. prior to that. You were winning races, and your body was all twisted up in knots, and you didn't know what was going on. Yeah, I was scared to death. I'm like, I mean, it was excruciating pain, and honestly, I didn't know what. I finally figured it out after that weekend what had happened, or what they had finally diagnosed me with the uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, but before that, I didn't think that I was going to be able to make the second moto uh, at Troy. I was like, dude, I. I I, I sent uh, my mechanic at the time, Chad Watts. I said, dude, go to the line and pick my gate for me. Johnny, you pick my gate for me. Do what you got to do. And if I'm there, I'm there. If I'm not, then that means I can't go. And uh, I can't make it to the, ring, to the second moto. So this had gone on for, you know, this was probably, this was like the seventh round of the season. So, yeah, it was miserable. But the crazy thing is it didn't really bother me during Supercross, only outdoors. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it, it sucked because you're supposed to be enjoying yourself while you have, you know, while you're being successful and winning races. And it just goes back to what we talked about earlier. It was, it was unpleasant for me. I mean, it, it just wasn't fun. Like feeling like you had to be on the, you know, go to the, be on the toilet all, all day long. That, that's no fun. Even when you're winning, it just, it sucked really. Now to finish off the bathroom humor with you and tell, tell what life is like with RC on the road. Our good buddy, uh, Pete Richards, producer Pete, uh, yep. reminded me of a time in St. Louis. You, you yeah. <laughs> Did, do you want to tell that story? Or yeah, you, I mean, sure. I'm, you still, are you still scarred from I, that I, night? I, or they, what? There is an image burned in my brain, singed in my eyes, and I will never forget. Uh, <laughs> we we were at a, at a restaurant. What was the name of our, our, our buddy there from the St. Louis Cardinals? Uh, Jim Edmonds. Jim Edmonds. That's it. Jimmy Edmonds. Jimmy Edmonds has this uh, restaurant in St. Louis, and we were all there for Supercross. And we go to dinner, and uh, me, Pete, and, and Ricky decide we're going to take a pit stop. So we walk into the restroom and make our way over to the it's urinals. It's lined up. Now, it remember, is it was lined up. To packed, full of, packed full of guys. Packed full yeah. of guys. And none of those guys really knew anything about who any of us were. They yeah. were all there for the nightclub next door. And uh, the three of us. Walk up yeah, to the urinal at the same time, doing our business, doing our yeah. thing. Pete and I are on the on the edges, and RC's in the middle, and we go about it the traditional way, uh, just standing there doing our thing, not making a scene. Well, Ricky promptly drops his drawers all the way down to his ankles and lifts his shirt up all the way, and it's a visual I'll never forget from there on. Yeah, the screaming! And I think, guys. dude, people were laughing. So no, they were the guys screaming. The they were, were laughing. screaming. Yeah, they couldn't believe it. I mean, you got. I mean, 
I'll never forget your expression. And it, you were just laughing so hard. You said, Carmichael, you are one of a kind. Oh, my God. Out. I still can't believe you did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, once in a while you just move the road so much, you just got to enjoy yourself once in a while. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get a good laugh out of these guys right now. And they're like, you know, so I just dropped it. The full deal all the way down to my ankles, pulled my shirt up like over my over my stomach and just which is yeah, a feat you know, in itself like, by like the a, way like a like a three-year-old at a urinal that was me <laughs> getting up uh, over the stomach's a feat in itself isn't it rc that's that's right <laughs> hey i'm doing all right now though i don't have to put my uh my socks on before my jeans so i'm doing all right <laughs> at a boy glad to hear it training is <laughs> training's working well for you <laughs> that's right <laughs> Hey, uh, you know, there there was another buddy of ours I spoke with, uh, Jeff Emig, Fro, and uh, Fro kind of just think, saying his name makes you laugh, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just thinking of which one did he tell yeah. you that I want to know. <laughs> well, he brought up a, a moment with board shorts uh, where you felt your thighs oh, were like dude. hamburger, and you. <laughs> oh, dude! Yeah. So we, I don't know. We were. We did an RCU up in um, Muddy Creek, I believe it was, and you know it was hot that day, and I had my riding gear on, and dude, and then after we're done, I put some board shorts on, and you know it's just dude, it was warm that day. So we're walking around doing our stuff, and it just you know just the elements of the outside air just wasn't conducive to wearing board shorts that day, and I and dude. Just my inner thighs were so raw. I'm like, dude, you can, you could. This is this is hamburger meat right now. You guys got some like seasoning and stuff like that, and it fro was just tore up. Now, obviously, I was building it up and kind of messing around with them, but definitely the board shorts weren't conducive to the um, inner thigh rubbing situation. Our buddy Fro did win the Supercross championship himself in what ninety seven, but he wanted to make sure to remind you that he won uh, the last race that you two battled in, which was the U.S. Open. Yeah, he did. My man is um, that's one thing he's got on me, and uh, it still doesn't sit well with me. Um, in nineteen ninety nine, the U.S. Open, he was going through a tough time. Had just gotten fired uh, from Kaws- Factory Kawasaki. We were teammates. And uh, went out, showed up to, uh, that was in the summer, in the fall in October is when the U.S. Open was. He shows up uh, kind of on his own deal, own dime, and uh, went out there and kicked all of our butts, won the hundred grand, cut me off uh, on the start. I'm still mad about it and, uh, and, and beat us all for the hundred grand. But it was a, it was a feel-good story for him, and uh, I was proud of him. You know, we talked a little bit about Johnny O'Mara and some of the people like that that had worked with you. Talk about Roger DeCosta real quick. What did working with RD like for you? Yeah, working, um, you know, I've had a lot of great, um, you know, it's not just Roger, but I've had a lot of great team managers uh, along my way. So Mitch Mitch Payton, obviously, yep. the, um, the founder of Pro Circuit and now the, the owner of Monster Energy Pro Circuit Kawasaki team. And, uh, you know, what can you say? I mean, there's nothing you could say bad about that guy. You know, he needs to win, and uh, he beats champions. 
uh, Bruce Sternstrom at Factory Kawasaki from an organizational standpoint. Um, there wasn't a better guy in the business. Uh, then I went to Factory uh, Honda, and I had Eric Kehoe as my team manager. Yep. Uh, as far as organizational skills as well, and knowing you know technical stuff, um, and because of his racing history at a professional level, he was really in tune. He was a fantastic team manager. And then, of course, when I went to the Factory Suzuki, uh, I was uh, blessed to work with a couple of guys, Roger DeCoster and Ian Harrison, which yeah. is now the uh, Red Bull KTM team manager. He took uh, Roger's spot as Roger got bumped up to oversee kind of what what is he overseeing both Husqvarna really, yeah. and KTM uh, North America. Yeah. So, uh, um, so they all had their strengths. Roger's strengths were um, his – his reputation with the Japanese and the trust that he had with them. You know, if he asked for stuff, most of the time they would try and do everything they could to give him what he was wanting. Um, but he was, he was all about winning. The other guys that I mentioned with the exception of Mitch, uh, were from an organizational standpoint. That's how they tried to get to the bottom, uh, to the end result where, where guys like Mitch Payton and Roger DeCoster were all about, bike performance and pushing the limits and relationships with the Japanese. And, uh, from a technical standpoint, they were really, really, really strong. And, uh, it was fun, you know, um, working with Raj was fantastic. He wanted to win just as bad as he did and, uh, was willing to ruffle any feathers to get what we needed for the motorcycle to make that happen. And, uh, it was a, it was a fun time. Anytime that you're able to work with when your boss has the same outlook as you do to getting the bottom line and that's winning, it makes it a, a fun experience. What went wrong with the NASCAR deal? You were, <laughs> you were running well there, but can, can you just give us a little insight on that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I had a fantastic opportunity in NASCAR. Very thankful for Monster Energy for giving me that, uh, you know, giving me that opportunity. And I am, uh, I am forever grateful for that. Um, everything was going pretty good. Um, we let's see here. So at the end of 2011, we we're getting close to. Um, to uh, going to the next step and what that next step was going to be is Monster Energy was going to take their efforts and bring it to KBM. Um, everything was going good. I was going to drive, um, I don't know, I think it was 20 or 25 races in the nationwide car. This is right when Kyle was starting up his uh, starting up his uh, his nationwide team. Uh, and then he was going to do the remainder of the races uh, in the nationwide series. Uh, so it, it was a fantastic opportunity for me. So everything was going good. It was the end of the, towards the end of the NASCAR season. Uh, and it's a weekend of Texas. So I think there's like three or four rounds, three rounds left. And the truck race that night, or actually we had actually negotiated the deal with his, uh, the guy that was running KB or help running KBM at the time. Uh, Rick Wren was his name. Yeah. We we had come to an agreement. I was going to fly up there on Tuesday or Wednesday after after Texas and sign it, and everyone was shooting high fives, and it was going to be good. Well, in the truck race, Kyle got into it uh, on caution with uh, Ron Hornaday, and I, I, everyone knows what happened there. Well, then things went on the rocks. So I'm like, oh, man, this sucks. So 
we go to Phoenix. Everyone knows what happened there. And then we get back on to what we had agreed upon uh, the week of Homestead. And then when we went through home, then we went to Homestead. Everything was looking good. Hey, everything's back on track. Um, hit, uh, Kyle's stuff on his cup side is good. Uh, we're going to continue to move the route that we were with you and him at, at KBM and Monster Energy is going to be great. I'm like, sweet, dude. So uh, anyhow, everything's good. <clears throat> We're going to fly up uh, Tuesday after Homestead or whatever, Wednesday, whatever it was, one of those days. I can't remember, but we were back on. And then the Sunday at Homestead, um, Kurt had an issue with one of the uh, – with was it Doc Punch, I believe it was? Mm-hmm. And uh, they got into it, or Kyle had – or pardon me, Kurt had said some words that uh, that some other people didn't agree with, and he ended up being released from his contract with Penske. Uh, as soon as that happened, I got a call saying, "Hey, hold up, you know, don't cut, yeah, you know what? We're, we uh, we might be doing something different." And as soon as that happened, I knew exactly what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, so they ended up uh, Kyle ended up sponsoring his brother, and. Uh, that that's basically when <laughs> my NASCAR career ended and I'm okay with that. You know, um, I mean, dude, Kurt, Kurt is, you know, he's a past cup champion. I mean, dude, the guy could run circles around me in a NASCAR. I mean, Kyle had to do what he had to do the best, best for himself, you know, and, and his sponsors. Was I bummed? Of course I was bummed. It was a fantastic opportunity. And I felt like, uh, selfishly and personally, I was going to learn from someone who was, you know, is arguably one of the best guys to this day that, uh, has driven a race car in the NASCAR series. So of course I was bummed out, but, uh, from a business standpoint, I understand why and what happened. And, uh, it was a tough pill to swallow, but dude, these guys got these guys got to do what's best for their companies and strengthen their position. I'm okay with that. Did it? Ha- did I have heartburn? Of course it did. But I was also thankful to Monster Energy for the opportunity that they gave me uh, those several years, just to even potentially have that option. I have I have no ill will toward towards it at all. I'm thankful that I was even in the mix. But that's how it ended. And you know what? <clears throat> it, uh, it it worked out. Uh, we ended up, uh, I was a- a- able to, uh, open up, a uh, up with dude, I would have done the same thing and they made the right decision. You know, yeah. uh, I am completely fine with that dude. And obviously we're having a great time working on the NBC broadcasts of uh, monster energy supercross, which is a-, a great opportunity to have you in the booth with us doing that. But you know, you also do many other things to give back to the sport, You've got RCU, the Ricky Carmichael University stuff, the Goat Farm, and, of course, Ricky Carmichael Amateur Supercross at Daytona, which is, as you mentioned yep. earlier, one of the biggest amateur opportunities in the in the world, really. There's a lot yep. of ways that you give back to kids. There's another program you're working on now to really help another group of kids that really could use it, uh, and that's the This Bike Saves Lives program that you've put together uh, I know you just took a Suzuki Boulevard and you rode all the way to Sturgis. You did a custom job with it, uh, w- with Clockworks, I believe. Tell me a yep. little bit about that. Yeah. So um, this 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 has been uh, this came together pretty quick. Uh, Clockworks had that bike for three weeks. Suzuki provided the bike M109 
thing is awesome. Just love that bike. Sent it to Clockworks. Uh, Clocks, Clockworks kitted it out. Whole bunch of fun stuff. And yes, um, I know we're running out of time here, but uh, <laughs> this bike saves lives. And it's we're going to raffle this bike off. It's going to go to all the Supercross races next year. And everyone's going to have an opportunity to win this bike. Um, and we're going to pick a winner at the Supercross finale in Salt Lake City yep. next year. And all the proceeds go to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So we need as many people as possible to sign up for this thing, have a chance to win it. It's a credible bike. I picked it up in Vegas, rode to Sturgis, rode while we were in Sturgis, did all that fun stuff, and it will be going on tour. And it, we had a lot of people kick in. Suzuki, you know, furnished a bike. Clockworks customized it, um, ho- put a whole bunch of fun stuff. Yoshimira gave us our exhaust. Um, there's a whole bunch of people that really kicked in on this deal and uh, it goes to a good cause i think people are really going to like it i got a bunch of killer comments about the bike uh while i was on the ride and mo- first and foremost it's going to a fantastic cause and i'm really excited that we'll be able to raise uh, quite a bit of money yeah it's a, it's a really cool bike and there's a lot of great social media stuff on it. all right final final question biggest surprise about doing television oh man just <laughs> Do you put me on the spot? I would say um, the biggest surprise is just uh, this is probably kind of negative, but uh, just everyone's opinion on social media. I didn't expect that people be so opinionated, uh, but I also I just, I'm going to give you a two answer. I enjoyed it uh, way more than I anticipated that I would. And it's almost like I am so amped to get going again. Uh, and it's going to be a, a lot of fun. Well, it is always a pleasure to chat with you, buddy. Uh, it, it's been great knowing you over all these years and watching your career, getting to call some of your wins, some of your championships, and now sharing the broadcast booth with you. I've seen that work ethic that you have to be the best you can be at television. It's remarkable. Thanks for being our first uh, two-wheel guest. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. The great one, the GOAT, Ricky Carmichael. Thanks for joining us here on the Ralph Shaheen Show, presented by Lucas Oil. Oh,